Welcome to the Thoughtful Gamer Podcast, Episode 7. Today we're going to be talking about near and far in campaign games. Here with me today is our regular contributor, Matt. Hey, how's it going, Mark? And everyone else was lame and decided not to come on the podcast, so it's just me and Matt again. But he is faithful. I, yeah, I'm excited about this one. Yeah, I'm really excited. Um, can I tell you about my drink? Your drink? Yeah, my drink. Okay. Well, first of all, Ben got these Death Star ice cubes. Yeah. Which are, are pretty good for a mixed drink. Oh, yeah, they're fantastic. But So I'm having a, a white Russian. It looks improperly mixed. I was thrown off by the ice cube, the, the, the Death Star ice cube, because they're just like a giant sphere. So when I when I was mixing it, it, yeah, it's not quite right. I have to get used to that. Yeah, it looks like a layered drink, and you don't want a white Russian to be layered. But do you know? Do you know some of the other kinds of Russians? We you, like you have your regular Russian. Well, you have the, the the white Russian, which is the normal one, which is Kahlua vodka and half and hell, half or milk. Yeah, and then the blind Russian, which substitutes Bailey's. Yeah, which is what you're doing, right? That's what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then, then you the have black the... Russian, which is just the vodka and Kahlua, right, which right. is my preference. Yes. And I then, don't know if there are any more Russians. Well, then you have uh, the Ovechkin, which is the white Russian, but you don't get a cup. <laughs> and then you have the Malkin, which is a white Russian, but you get three cups because the Pittsburgh Penguins are repeat Stanley Cup champions. Oh, wow. I forgot hockey. I, I, I'm going to be honest. Hockey has <laughs> completely left my brain after the series was Two over. days after, after the Stanley Cup finishes. Uh, but yes, this, the Pittsburgh Penguins are Stanley Cup champions once again for the second year in a row. Yay. In six games, as I predicted on this podcast. That's true. And it, it went down similarly to, to how I suggested it would. Great offense by the Pens. Yeah. Offense that came from the defense for the Preds. Okay. Um, and the referees really helping out the Pens in game six? The referees were bad. All around. There, there was one particular call that was just flat out awful. We're not it was gonna, horrific. We're not going to defend it. The rules should allow for them to reverse that kind of thing. Um, but uh, there were calls that were about 70% that bad that went against the Pens. Other calls that went against the Preds. Which from an the, outside the question, observer... Yeah, sure. Well, actually, let me explain for the people who don't watch hockey. <laughs> Basically, what had happened is uh, one of the Predators shot into the net or shot into the goalie. It kind of looked like the goalie trapped it for like... A quarter of a second, and then it popped out from under his arm, and another predator hit it into the net. But in that quarter second, one of the referees called it dead. And from an, as an outside observer, I don't understand why there isn't kind of a policy among referees to like wait a beat before they make before they blow that whistle, just for exactly that reason. Yeah, I, I don't know the technicalities of the of the of the rules, and it's an indefensible call. It was it was an awful. It was call. horrible. Yeah. You know, in terms of like expected goals, that was a bad call worth one goal. Yeah, exactly uh, one goal. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's not a conversation we should be having. We should be talking about how amazing it is. First time in the salary cap era, a team has repeated as Stanley Cup champions. Dynasty baby. I, I thought you were going to say that we should be talking about board games. And oh, this this isn't a ho- I, this is not a hockey podcast. Wow, wow, man. Okay, all right, board games. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Okay, so 
I've talked about before how my most anticipated game of 2017 that I have on pre-order is has been Near and Far. It's yeah. uh, a game by artist, designer, producer, or publisher Ryan Lockett, whose art is always amazing. Previously, I had reviewed on the site he, one of his earlier games, Above and Below, which is kind of a Euro-y worker placement game, but the big grab of that game is that it has this storybook and you could go out exploring in the caves and a person reads a little paragraph to you about what you experience and you have a couple of choices and you roll a kind of skill check to see what happens and that's really you know other than the art and just the presentation in general which is spectacular that's the main draw of the game it's a pretty good worker placement style of game but the exploration really pushes it into, you know, pushes it up a bit. And so his next game was kind of a sequel-ish to Above and Below, and it's called Near and Far. And as soon as I heard about it, I, I backed it on Kickstarter because I liked Above and Below. It's not amazing, but it's, it's very good. And I saw that Near and Far was not only going to be an adventuring, exploration-themed game, but it was also going to be a campaign game. And with the storytelling, I thought that was just a, an amazing opportunity for Lockett to do yeah. something really special here. Yeah, yeah. Immediately, it felt like um, something that was novel in Above and Below. They were they were taking it to the logical next step. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so we got it this past week, and we've played it three times now. Yeah, three times. And I just want to talk about it real quick and kind of, or not quickly, but go into the details of, of this game. Right off the bat, the art is incredible as always. Like, I love his style of art. It's very warm. It's very whimsical, I guess. And he really, I noticed he really likes the colors blue, green, and gold. This one, above and below, was more on the blue, green color scale this one has a lot of the golds and the this is browns. a this is a warmer a warmer palette yeah, yeah warmer palette but still along the same lines as 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 above and below actually i this is interesting above and below almost had the dichotomy of the above was very warm the below was kind of brown blue it was it was a it was more of a gray blue i think was it i don't remember oh, as much you, well, yeah. I mean, you had the 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 the, the two different things. Sure. Uh, in this game, it almost, you know, you ha it's almost like a desert town that you're going from. Um, yeah, it almost has the western look to it. It re no, it reminds me <laughs> of the main the main game board, not the map, but the the actions board. Yeah. It reminds me of the movie. What was it called? Rango. Rango. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Which was an okay movie, but that that looked really good. Like yeah. it had fantastic art in that movie, and that's kind of the style we're looking at in Near and Far. And I love it. It's slightly impressionistic, almost. I don't a bit. It it's very whimsical. Whimsical is I yeah, talked warm about and this, whimsical. I think is what you said for, off the bat, and that's 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 spot the on. alliteration <laughs> of choice here. It could have gone too far. And been too cute, but it firmly hasn't gone that far. It's gone up to that line in the best way possible, I think. And just, it really adds a lot to the game as well, I think. Just the the aesthetic experience of playing yeah, the game. To yeah, me, at no, least. That, 
Well, I mean, we'll get into the mechanics and the actual gameplay, but it plays directly into the feeling of playing the game. Yeah. I think. Yeah, and I mean, as far as the the art goes, it's not just the the art itself, but just kind of the 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 overall production value of of like the the components have the same sort of warm whimsical feel. Yeah, you're placing the these tents on places that you adventure or bandits that you beat and so on. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it has pack birds, yeah. which is my pack favorite birds. thing. Which is just a little <laughs> picture of a kiwi-like bird with a little saddle pack on it. And it's my favorite animal, I think, in any game. Yeah, I mean, they could have had just like a horse. Or a donkey or something. But yeah. no, it's a little tiny bird. It, yeah. It's hilarious. Yeah, it's great. Or a tortoise, which is a slight upgrade from a slightly more expensive. Yeah, I'll always <laughs> go for the birds. Kiwis are great birds. I don't think it's exactly a kiwi, but very heavily inspired by one. Yeah. Kiwi, fun fact. Kiwis have the largest egg to oh. bird ratio of any animal. I've seen that like skeleton drawing. Yeah, that has the an egg, egg is in like it. a third the size of the actual bird. It's spectacular. Go look it up if you haven't seen this this picture. Anyway, the art's amazing. Uh, I think it's a Kickstarter exclusive. I don't know if it's going to be available elsewhere. I got metal coins, which are great. Listen to the metal coins. That's, that's what they sound like, uh, which is always a great thing. I love metal coins. Although I think this is the first game we have that actually has them. I think just because I, think so. I didn't have to pay more for them. So I, I got them. Oh, okay. So it was just stingy be- like that. It was probably like a stretch goal or something. On the I think it was, yeah. yeah. But I think it was, it was one of those really early stretch goals where it's like, yeah, we're including this in the game, but you know, we'll make it a stretch goal. Yeah. And along with that, you get the gems, which are equally amazing. Yeah, little plastic uh, ruby-looking things. So let's go over really quick kind of the basics of the game. It's, as I said before, an exploration-based game. It's kind of in the gather a group of adventurers and go do quests genre with a bit of a twist. It kind of reminds me of Scythe in that... You know, at, at its core, it's still a Euro game, and it's about kind of economizing your actions, but your turns are really short. You go do one thing, you can't do what you did before on the previous turn, and you're kind of bouncing around doing things. So there are two segments to the game. You have kind of the, the town, the little Western-style town, where there are like seven or eight different action spaces, so you can hire a pack bird, or dig in the mines for gems, or go... F- farming and get some food or hire workers and so there are a bunch of different actions on there to kind of gear up and gain resources and then there's the adventuring part which is on this really cool map book so it's a spiral bound book and has 12 i believe 12 different maps on it and that's kind of your play area for the game yeah and this can't be understated how cool this is there's not one map that this game is played on it's a spiral-bound book of different maps, each beautifully illustrated with a different geographic theme. Yeah, so like the one we played on last night was this toxic desert, and it had spaces where if you cross them, you lose health because the water was toxic. And the one before that was a much more pastoral and grass-like. And there's a water one, I think, later on. There's one with a volcano. 
It's really, really cool. And it changes a lot. It's like the very first one we played. Were you? Did you play that very first no, game with us? No. The I, very first starter map is really friendly in that the, the main town is kind of toward the center of the map. And there aren't as many... It didn't seem like there was many spaces to go on. So so it's easier to get to the... Out, the it's easier to get to yeah. things. Okay. But this desert one... So, like, in the starter one, I think every like every spot was within, within five or six spaces of the town. In this desert one, there were some spots that are, like, 10, 11 spaces away from the town. And the town's all, all the way on one side of the map, and, and it branches out. Yeah. Um, instead of the town being in the middle. So when you go adventuring, essentially you leave the town. And R- you... Real quick, with that first map, I think I looked at it. Yeah. It's themed on above and below. Yes, like it you, is. You it actually is can the go above and below right, so region. You, you can go into the, the caves. Yeah, yeah. Said, so yeah, it's a little homage really cool. uh, to to its own game. Oh, and just a random tidbit. All of the adventurers in this game, on you can flip them over, and they're above and below characters. So you can add them to above and below as people you can recruit. And it adds like, a couple new... There are like 50 adventurers in this bag. Yeah, and they're like... And, and there, it adds a couple new dynamics. I think they can make like sandwiches or something, and they they all have their own bed because they're like rugged sandwich ex- explorers or something. Uh, so it adds a couple new rules. So it'll be fun to play with above and low with those those people. But when you go out adventuring, there are basically a couple of different spots on the spot types on the board. So the board's going to have thirty or so spots you can go on, areas you can go on. That sounds right. And when you leave the town, you, you count up the number of hearts you have, which is based on how, how good your adventurers are. Yeah, each, each adventurer has a heart rating. Has a heart There rating. are other ways to get heart, hearts, but the main way is adventures. And so that's kind of a measure of your courage, your fatigue, your health, kind of overall strain. Or you're like, your ability to adventure for a long time. And yeah. so... You can travel as many spots as your movement speed, and once you go to a spot, if there's a quest there, you have someone read you a quest from the storybook. And I'll talk about the different ways you can play the game, but that's where it kind of becomes similar to Above and Below, in that you're reading these these little paragraphs, and you're given a couple of choices, and you get some reward out, out of it if you pass the skill test. And these are really well-written little narratives you know a narrative in a paragraph kind of thing yeah i think they're i think they're better than above and below in terms of like writing there's a little bit more variety i think the world is explored a bit more above and below in terms of like the world was a bit more concentrated i feel like this one kind of expands on on this universe he's created and that's one thing to do when you're out adventuring the other main thing is that you can pitch camps and this is a really cool part of the game just from a thematic and a a very strict gameplay standpoint because as you adventure each space you you pass over costs a heart to go that distance which is costly hearts are very valuable in this game yeah like a mature um adventuring party is gonna have 10 to 12 yeah uh hearts so so yeah if you're moving a lot and losing a bunch of hearts, it's costly. Yeah. But what happens is when you pitch a camp, which uses one of your tents, which is kind of the timer on the game. The game ends once someone has used all 14 of their tents. 
And you get rewards based on the space, so usually coins or gems. And then in the future, anyone else, including you, who goes over that space with the tent doesn't have to pay a heart. So it's like, as a group, it's almost like a cooperative thing, except in a competitive game. As a group, you're kind of branching off from the main town. And as the game progresses, it becomes easier and easier to hit those outside, far away spaces. And I love that dynamic because... Yeah, it's really cool. There's, an, there's a heavy incentive to pitch tents early and get those those coin and gem resources because it's if you get the right adventuring party set up, it's the most efficient way to get resources in the game. But if you if you do that, you're kind of subsidizing the other players because now it's easier for them to get kind of the next layer of spots. Yeah, and I think totally. that's a really great yeah. kind of emergent I mean, aspect of the game. I, I can think of one instance in particular in the last game where I kind of went tent building happy because... I kind of built up an economy where I was, I I gained a lot from tenting. And Mm -hmm. so I was inclined to tent a lot. Um, And I was planning on kind of going out on this one kind of trail on the map Mm -hmm. and and gaining a lot of the the, the good things, including a story token and and stuff like that. Uh, But as I, I, I tented along the way, that made it cheap enough that Orion beat me to one of the... One of the places you were building I, toward? I, exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was it was fine. Like, I was tenting and getting a lot out of that, mm-hmm. but he got the story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I think in terms of, like, purely mechanics, that aspect of the game where placing camps and placing tents as collectively helps kind of expand the board i think that's the best mechanism in the game it's really really well done yeah it is really great and it's very kind of under the radar i mean i I guess it's it's subtle it's subtle like i like honestly i put no thought into whether my tents were happy helping other people uh, in the games i've played I, I, i think in the first game that we played together you really utilized it because you spent a lot of time building up your party and didn't tent much in the beginning whereas i was trying to and i kind of got an early lead in in kind of a nebulous progress sense but you had a really solid adventuring party and were, was able to get that kind of mid-late oh, yeah, areas of the game really well. I was reaching out to the far reaches of the map, which was... It was extremely yeah. lucrative for you. Oh, yeah, yeah. I ended up winning that game because of that mid-game. Um, and a lot of it was that it was easy for me to get to the far reaches. Yeah, in just in a general sense, the way that the game progresses is really cool. Just how, like, at the beginning of the game... You're going to maybe venture one or two spaces from town. And then at the end of the game, you're reaching the far reaches of the map to get, the, you know, the, the last really good bonuses. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just the natural progression. The tents are the one aspect of it. I think there are a couple other things, you know, that help, help with that. Um, yeah. You but get it's more a great. Movement. Yeah. The game has a gr- satisfying progression in that sense of adventuring further out as you go. Yeah. And it's interesting. One of the one of the criticisms I had of Above and Below is that it often feels like it ends a bit too soon. If anything, this game has the opposite issue, where it might drag on a hair too long. Which I don't I love mind it. it. I love it. I I want it to go on. This game yeah. gets me. 
for me personally, that's the better error. I'd rather yeah. a game go on a little bit too long than a little bit too short. Although yeah. I think among like board gamers and especially in terms of like design philosophy, the standard line I think is that you want, if anything, the, the game to end a little bit too soon. And I don't like that. Well, I, I don't know what to say in a general sense, but it works for this game. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because this game has a little bit of a narrative. I mean, it's it's a good game, but it does feel happy, warm. Warm yeah, yeah, is yeah. maybe the word. Yeah, that's the adjective. It, it, in, in the sense that, you know, if it goes on a little bit too long, it's okay. Because yeah. it's a good time going on adventures. Yeah. The way the adventuring kind of builds on itself is my favorite part of the game. Some of the things I think are a bit weak is that some of the action spaces in the town seem underpowered, I guess. Like the general store, I don't think I've ever gone to the general store in any That's of the games. That's the one that stands out to me. Uh, Unless but... you're really trying to go hard on artifacts and you need to draw more really quickly. That's the only reason to go there. Because one of the things in the general store is that you can go there and get a single coin. You know, but almost always there's a way to get multiple coins. On yeah. Yeah. Just from just from one of the other actions, you'd have to be in an early game bind to take a coin from the general store. Yeah, which thematic thematically, I don't even know what that means. I think you robbed it. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't thought of that. <laughs> yeah, go to the general store, get a coin, or maybe you just go volunteer to work there for a day. Maybe, maybe. I like the idea that you just go rob it, and it, and they just don't have a lot of money. Yeah, and you and then you feel bad. Yeah, because you had to go to the store and just get one coin. Alternatively, you get four artifacts, which you, I guess, you buy them later. So it's some kind of of lending I don't, program. I don't know. Anyway, we're, we're yeah, thinking it too seems hard like it seems like perhaps if we played this more, it, it's conceivable that a strategy of going to the general store to look at a lot of artifacts, if you were going to score points that way, could work. Yeah, it might, it might work that way. We might be underutilizing it in that towards the end of the game, it might be better to go to the general store and find artifacts that you can already afford rather than trying to do things to fit the cost of the artifacts you already have. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. So I might have to try that out. But going there for a coin, it seems like you would have to be playing very poorly for that to be the, the correct play. I mean, I think all of the 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 options in the town are fine. You know, another one that we haven't used is the the uh, Mystics Hut. Yeah, um, we used that more in the first game because you go to the Mystics Hut and you get treasure cards. Yeah, and we thought, oh, great treasure cards, and they're kind of really weak. Like they're helpful. They're kind of helpful. They're a small bonus to a particular action, usually. Yeah, but the artifact cards are... Better. (laughs) Well, they're kind of maybe a hair stronger on the bonus they give you, but then they also give you probably the majority, or they give you more points than any other single aspect of the game. Yeah. Unless you you pursue a really idiosyncratic strategy, like very focused strategy. And also, you have to have a pack animal to hold your treasure, so... Yeah, so it doubles up. You have to take an action to get the pack animal, then you have to take an action to get the, the, the treasure. It, yeah. It, well, it seems but, weak to me. Yeah, but, um, you know, the other one, the farm, to, you're gaining food. So, I, I feel like there are two or three, probably the mine, the saloon, and the town hall, 
um, in the stables. Which well, I think ki- ideally, if kind you of play the... correctly, you shouldn't need to go to the town hall. Mm, no, I just... Well, no, that's not true. Because you don't have control over what faction tokens you get. I was going to get that. You actually do. Let's, let, let's talk about this, because I think this is a very well, interesting Well, let me finish my thought first. Okay, go. Um, so I think about half of the town places are valuable in an obvious sense. And then the other ones are very situational. Yeah. And and that's fine. I don't think there's any problem with that. It, I don't think that think... that's a defect of the game. I think... I think there are cases where you would go to any of them and they're they're interesting enough in themselves that I don't f- have a problem with them being in the game. I guess my main issue is that the treasure like something that is called a treasure card should feel okay, important. Yeah. And kind of the whole mini game structure of acquiring treasure cards and that you need to go acquire a pack animal to carry it and you can only have 3 at a time if you have 3 pack animals. And then they end up being really kind of weak. What if they it gave you? What if they gave you like two victory points on average? That'd feel a bit better. Although I'd rather treasure be something that's not victory point related and more just a better bonus. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I, the game seems pretty balanced, so I, I'm not criticizing it on balance issues. It's just I wish it was named something else because it never feels like you're getting a treasure. I'll, I'll agree with you there. Yeah. Yeah. It, it feels a bit wrong and even we noticed in the talents in the campaign something is called treasure hunter but it actually deals with artifacts because artifacts are the are the real treasure yeah exactly (laughs) artifacts give you a bonus and they can give you a significant number of victory points gameplay wise i i like one also it it seems kind of lame that you can just go to a spot as your action and just grab a treasure like, right. you're not actually finding right. a treasure. You're going to the Mystic's Hut who just hands you one. It's I, like you go to the general store and rob it, and then you go to, like, the antique store and you rob that. Yeah, I don't know. It's <laughs> it, That's kind of underwhelming. The gameplay on the on the town level is pretty good, I'd say. Um, I think the adventuring part of it is a bit more... is a bit better developed in terms of... Or maybe it's just more intuitive. Like, it feels more right. Like, the, well, the ratio of, like, geogra- the rewards you get. Yeah, there's a geometry to it of where, like, you're actually moving on spaces on a map. So, in that sense, it, it it's more intuitive. Yeah. Let's talk about these faction tokens, though. Because it's a really interesting yeah, part cu- of the game that I think we haven't figured out yet. I'm really curious what you have to say about it, about the control. Because I don't know what control you're talking about. So there, there are a couple of primary ways of getting victory points. Placing tents gives you victory point one per tent. The artifact cards, which you draft at the beginning of the game, give you victory points uh, when you purchase them. And in our experience, that's been the biggest point getter. Uh, you get like five points if you get all three treasures. That seems like, to me, that seems like a lot of effort for a few points. And then you have these four factions that are in this universe. And it's like the nomads and the mystics and the lizard folk and the outlaws, I think. And they're represented by these four colors. And each of the adventurers you acquire are going to be part of one of these factions. And each of the factions has a card where if you are the first person to get a combination of four adventurers and faction favor tokens, which you get through quests you get that 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 clan leader and it's worth five points. And I think the only way in the game to get the faction leader tokens is through questing. But 
one of the thing one of the mechanisms in the game is that you get discounts on adventures based on how much faction loyalty you already have. So if you purchase a one cost faction uh, one cost adventurer, uh, you'll get a one discount then on your next one. So you kind of can build up a pool of adventurers from a particular faction to try to chase those leader bonuses. And one of the things in the game, and this is one of the criticisms I had with with Above and Below too, is that in Above and Below, no matter how you're trying to role play the story, you kind of always want to go for the most difficult skill check as possible because it's going to give you the best rewards. And there's not a whole lot of ability to predict what kind of rewards you'll get. So maybe every once in a while you'll have a, a little adventure where it involves fishing and you think, oh, if I do this, I'll probably get fish as a reward. But that's extremely rare. In Near and Far, it seems like the rewards aren't quite as dramatically tied to the skill check. So in other words, if there's a five skill check and an eight skill check, the rewards for going after the eight one isn't necessarily going to be miles above what you would get going for the five one. Instead... Since most of them seem to give faction loyalty tokens, or maybe even all of them, I think almost all of them at the very least, you can predict... I, th- I think all of them. Have all of them done it? I think... I'm pretty I, sure. Okay, maybe all of them. It, it feels like there's a bit more control and role-playing in that you can do the thing that you want to do, either as part of like your questing, or to try to gain particular faction points. Because grab the player aid... Uh, card, Matt. Uh, the player aid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the card there. Yeah. Look at that side of the card. Yeah, it, it has... It gives you these... Attributes for the four different factions. And... Yeah. Using that, I was looking through when I was reading quests in the last game, it very much ties to those attributes. So if you are pursuing... Oh, yeah, the, the green factions, straight up... The outlaws... Any so, violent decision or aggressive decision in the in the quest is going to give you a green faction token. Yeah. So I'm looking at the um, generic quest deck, which is awesome that there's a generic quest deck besides all of the storybook uh, quests. Yeah, we'll talk about that, the different yeah. ways to play the game so later. So Lost Miner, if you choose the attack option... You get a green. You get a green. If you choose the aid option you get what a yellow yellow or blue probably blue Blue, yeah yeah yeah. interesting so i haven't been utilizing that until like the second half of the last game we played but i think that's a really cool thing because also because there's not as much of a discrepancy between kind of the lower skill and the higher skill checks in terms of rewards it allows you to really go after those clan bonuses by your decisions and quests well one thing that we've noticed is that the randomness effective quest is a little bit lessened compared to above and below well i think that's just because i think they're i think they're the rewards are more balanced i think that and i think it's a function of the fact there are only like three resources in the game whereas in above and below there are like eight and the order in which you get them very much matters for how valuable they are to you true so I think that's a really cool aspect of the game. And I okay. think fighting over these clan bonuses may come into play more in future games. Yeah, that's super interesting. And we should say now that like there are some artifacts, usually more powerful artifacts, that require a clan token as a cost. Yeah, that's significant. In, in addition to building up a high cl- 
clan loyalty to get the um, the clan bonus. Yeah, so I think something that we haven't been doing as much is when we're drafting those artifact cards, or when we when we look at our hand of artifact cards, because that is that does seem to be the most significant way to get points, is that we need to be basing our early quest decisions probably based around what loyalty tokens we need to have to buy our high cost, high value artifacts. Yeah, that, that's super interesting, Mark, and I I have not played like that. Um, mostly because I was trained by above and below to take the harder option. Yeah, I don't think that's necessarily the best um, play. And I think you're right. And the fact that it is so thematically tied is is great. It's it's so funny that this completely escaped me in the two games I've played. Well, I just I mean I played three games and I I missed it until I was looking at them because I, I I never really looked at that part of the player aid. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, well, this means something. I think. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about kind of the mechanics of the game other than the, I, I was going to go um, over the, the, only the main th- ways to play next? Yeah, the only thing that I, I would say is you mentioned both the town gameplay on your turn. You can go to one of the, the buildings in town or you can adventure, which consists of usually moving and then doing something at the spot that you end up maybe encountering something along the way. Um, so we have those those two aspects of the game. What I was going to say is they complement each other beautifully. So neither one by itself, I think, makes an in, uh, a, a very interesting game. I mean, if it was just the map of adventuring... Yeah, they need each other. Be, yeah. It, because the rhythm of the game yeah. is that you go to the town, you prepare to adventure, yeah, and you and go Yeah, and just in a thematic way, it's really cool to go back to town and, you know... Rest and gear and rest, up. Yeah, and like sometimes, especially uh, some of my strategies that I've done involve sticking around town longer. And so I'm kind of meandering to the different buildings in town for a longer period of time while you guys are out already adventuring. Right. But that, you know, that prepares me for the big adventure to come. So Matt and I have been gushing about the game a little bit. And it's not that I don't see faults in it. It's that I do like it quite a bit, at least so far. But Orion, I think, has... I'm sorry, I'm making you sound like you're just a negative person. (laughs) But, no, this is very valuable. He's the villain in this episode, Mark. (laughs) The villain? (laughs) But, no, we talked about this earlier. And Orion, you think it's, what, an okay game? I think it's, it's fine. It can be fun. But I ran into a lot of faults that makes me not excited to play it again. Yeah, so let's look at Orion's perspective. And I we talked about this before, and I guess you are kind of the villain now of the episode, but I agree with a lot of your criticisms in fact, but not in intensity, I think. Anyway, Orion's here to bring the beat down on this game, so <laughs> go for it. Okay, so... To me, this game seems like just a worse version of Scythe. There's this kind of moving your pawn back and forth to do these different actions. You can't just sit on one, so you have to bounce back and forth. And obviously it's different because it's just your single character and you will spend time out adventuring instead of you know taking the move action in Scythe and sending your explorer out while also moving your mechs or your workers or whatever. But I see it feels similar, but and and it's fun, right? It's it's a fun game, but you're you're playing and you get to the end, and you realize it took like two and a half or hours, or you know I think that's what our last game was, 
And, you know, I, I think Scythe is a better game in less time. And I'm certainly not one to shy away from long games. I love long, deep strategy games. You know, Twilight Imperium, the GMT coin series, you know, Eclipse, the Rebellion or War of the Ring, which are all multi-hour or all-day games. But the the ratio of game to time to fun seems somewhat lacking for me here. Yeah, that makes sense a bit to me. I think part of that is that, well, we've been playing four-player games, which is the maximum number of players. It probably plays better at three just because it's quicker. And not to be mean, but some people in our group are slower at making decisions than others in games. I don't know what you're talking about. Right. And I think you're right. It does feel very similar to Scythe. But to me, that's an advantage in speeding up the game for me. Matt may have a different experience in that, like in the last game, I was planning like four or five actions ahead of time. And then when when I got to my turn, I'm like, okay, I'm doing this. And I knew exactly what I was going to bounce around and do the next four actions. It's, it's funny. Both Scythe and this are games that I struggle very little with um, analysis paralysis. Really? Because it yeah, seems absolutely. like you're really mulling over decisions a lot compared to oh, the rest may, of us. Maybe, yeah, still compared to the rest of you, I guess. Okay. Um, more so this than Scythe. Anyway, I, I didn't feel me... like it was a big problem in this game, but <laughs> but yeah, I, I see the the opportunity for APs there. Yeah, it is, it is certainly a longer game than Above and Below. So go, going along with the Scythe kind of comparison is that I think Scythe is just a cooler setting and world to live in and it's more i don't know it's more epic it's more interesting and maybe that's just my proclivity towards you know cyber mech or steampunk mech settings over a uh exploration more fantasy world but i don't know i just i think scythe is better in a lot of different kind of axes of comparison in design and gameplay and time and quality of experience yeah it's interesting um you guys have both compared this to scythe um i think more than i ever would which is interesting i mean setting wise as you're talking about it's it's very different i like both but i it's reasonable to prefer one or the other as far as like i guess i see the similarity as they're kind of snappy euros that don't feel like euros to me I think the comparison is one of rhythm. In yeah, both yeah, it's games, a comparison of, of rhythm. In both games, you kind of have very, very free-form, open-ended goals and strategy directions you can go. And throughout the game, you're constantly making kind of intermediate strategy decisions. So in Scythe, you might say, okay, I want to try to build this building to help make something more efficient or to, to be able to cross the river. And yeah. then you can plan like, your next two or three or four actions to accomplish that inter- intermediary strategy. In this to game, me, it's like I to want me, to go adventuring and maybe place two tents, and then you plan out three or four actions to prepare yourself to do that. Yeah. And so that's kind of how it feels very similar to me. So to me, Scythe is more obviously about building an engine. And uh, the way that you have kind of a limited set of actions in Scythe you're really trying to optimize what order you do those actions in to get your engine going as quickly as possible. Whereas in this game, 
I don't I don't feel the need to optimize it as much. I think there are there are more ways to be successful and there are more options. There there are way more actions available to you. So it's not as clear as a an optimization game. It's 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 way more narrative by nature. I think it can be just as kind of tight and optimization focused. I think it just doesn't feel that way because of the the art in the in the narrative aspects. But I feel like we we might get to that point with this game, similar to Scythe. We might, but but again, I think that the the limited action, uh, the, the the limited availability of actions in Scythe makes it different. Where yeah, where you in, have more branching decision paths in this game. Yeah, I mean, even within the town, it's I think each action does less than in Scythe, mm-hmm. and there are more of them. And then adventuring is its own animal that's besides that. Yeah, I see your point. In Scythe, it seems almost like a puzzle to be solved. In this one, it seems like there are, yeah, I guess more branches of good overall strategy or intermediate strategies, as I talked about before, that you could go for. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, but but going back to Orion's criticisms, we had some technical difficulties. So he is teleported out of this podcast back to do some programming that he needs to do. Uh, actually important things in life like work instead of just yammering about games but as i said before i think i agree categorically with his criticisms but they just don't bother me as much and part of it's just personalities orion's orion loves optimization and very kind of planning out his strategy very particularly where I think you and I enjoy kind of the more Lucy narrative aspects to this game. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the optimization games are great. And I I, I don't, I enjoy those. Oh, yeah, me too. Pure, yeah, we both do. But a game like this that provides you more freedom to kind of get away from a strictly op- optimization thing. A game like this that does that extremely well is like a breath of fresh air. Yeah, and if anyone's going to counter my dry Euro optimization puzzle credentials, let it be known that in my upcoming top 10 is going to be Castles of Burgundy, which is about as dry of an optimization puzzle as you can possibly conceive of. (laughs) Anyway, let's talk about the campaign aspect of the game, because to me, I think this is the most exciting part of Near and Far. Yeah, this is really interesting. I'm, I'm interested to hear what you have to say because I'm not strictly excited about the campaign. Although I, I think it it's awesome. I'm, in, I'm, I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Well, let's just talk overall. So there are four ways to play the game, as it says in the rule book, although it's really kind of three ways. You have the two, kind of the tutorial map, which, as we talked about before, is a bit easier of a map to kind of get you into the game. There's no real reason to play that more than once. And then it has these cards that you can use instead of the storybook, which just provide you with a setting and then a couple of choices. So, like, what's one of the cards you, you have sitting there? What what was the example you gave? Yeah, yeah, So these, like, these generic story cards. Yeah, like, what's an example of, of one yeah, of those? Yeah, th- there was one that was, like, Unhelpful Walrus or something like that. Wait, really? Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, I think it's remarkable, actually, between just the title, which is something like Unremar- or, uh, Unhelpful Walrus, and then the two options in, in what they're called, 
I think it's remarkable how much story is packed into just that. Yeah, it's kind of similar to the scythe exploration stories where it just shows you the yeah, image. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. then a couple of choices. Yeah. So we haven't played with that yet, but it's a quicker it's a quicker way to play the game. You would be able to cut out probably 10 or 15 minutes just by not reading stories. Yeah, there's no text, big text. So that's kind of the, it's called the arcade mode. And then there are two very distinct campaign modes. The one that we've played is the character campaign. And in that, you choose one of the eight characters. Each player chooses one of the eight characters in the game. And they're very diverse and interesting. One's a robot. One's a lizard. My person is a kid who found a, or who was gifted a shard of glass that lets him see into the past. It's really cool. (laughs) I feel like that's the weirdest one. I just kind of picked it at random, yeah. and it ended up being really cool. I'm but the I'm the lizard woman, and I'm awesome. You uh, you have dubious morals, as we <laughs> found out, as the lizard woman. Anyway, in this in the in the character campaign, you play a, basically four games to complete the campaign, and when you land on a quest base, you get a quest specifically tied to your character. And it's all one long narrative with some branching choices that you're going to be going through throughout the entire campaign. And to me, that's just a really cool aspect of the game because it's cohesive. In Above yeah. and Below, you always just got a random little story. And it was cute and fun, but none of it was really cohesive at all. It was just completely random. And in this way, you're, you're actually e- following each. a story. And... While I think some of the kind of the choices are might be false choices, they only give the illusion of, of choice. Yeah. There is some branching paths that you go on, and maybe it all ends up at the same place. So I don't yeah, know. We it, haven't completed it, it yet, and that's where I'm not sure what I think. I, I think you said it well. The illusion of choice is kind of what you get. It seems like there may be like there are two different ways that this story could go. So maybe you end up doing half of the missions that are written for your character along the way so in a sense it doesn't feel super satisfying to me in in terms of a deep narrative but on the on the surface it it is kind of superficially interesting yeah and i think just the fact that because it's referencing things that you've done in decisions yeah you do progress you end up with a progression in the missions that you take yeah and in some sense like when, you, when you're talking about branching paths and decision trees, it's exponential. Like if you're actually doing a bunch of dis- different decision trees, right. that from a design standpoint and just a logistical standpoint, I mean, the book's already what it, it's, you know, half an inch thick. It's, it's a pretty big storybook. Yeah. If you were to make like really complex decision trees and pathways like that, it would be a massive undertaking. My suspicion is the way they structured these is that there are kind of two to three pathways and then certain decisions can kind of have you hop trails. Mm -hmm. So you might be going down one particular trail and then you do something that hops you back to a trail that you could have been going on the entire time before, which is probably a clever way of structuring it. So you don't have those massive uh, undertaking in terms of like decisions. Yeah. And so it, I guess it's just a matter of how much you can suspend your disbelief yeah. on how much free will you actually have in the game. But I'm pretty easygoing when it comes to that, and I find it I find it interesting. I can kind of ignore the, the yeah, and you you end up with a cool narrative as far as the the gameplay goes for for a given playthrough. It, it's interesting because 
you're not necessarily thinking about your particular character's narrative as you, you know, build up your party in town and then start adventuring. But when you do finally hit the stories, the story tokens that are out on the on the board, then you jump back into the narrative. Yeah, it's not as richly tied to the gameplay itself as I'd like. Yeah. It's almost like something that happens as part of playing the game, but it's not tied to the gameplay. Yeah. It, but the, but the stories really are written so well, and, and they're strong enough that I don't mind that so much. I think it's a matter of if it was able to tie into the gameplay very deeply, it would be, like, mind-blowing. But as it is, it's it works Actually, this is something that that I find really interesting for perhaps the future of campaign games in general is that I feel like this the the character campaign in near and far is like an interesting narrative that's inserted into the the normal gameplay mm-hmm. without drastically changing the normal gameplay. Sure. This is very different than Pandemic Legacy, which is uh, the only other major campaign game that I've played. And I think I like this in Near and Far because it gives you a taste of narrative, provides a sense of continuity throughout the game, you know, the gameplays, the multiple gameplays that is satisfying in a way, even though it's it's not as tied directly to every gameplay decision that you make. Yeah, again, I I think it's not ideal, but it is fine. It's well, it's well adapted and and it's interesting. I think it's super interesting because so there's no downside to having these stories with continuity through multiple gameplays. Well, I think the the upside is that it just provides a, a, a more overarching story. Well, I mean, the way in which it's not ideal is that it's often disconnected from what you're actually doing in the game. So, right. like, because you, like, start over each game. You start with no more adventure. You start with no adventures at the beginning of the game. You start with a dog or a cat. But right. you should choose the dog. And you build up a party and you're gathering resources and you do things. And then you end the game and then you start over again with nothing. And you build up resources and gather a party. But the But the... The narrative is about like you alone basically going around and doing yeah. things that are not connected so much to what you're actually doing in game. Yeah. And it's okay, it works. But let's talk about the other way. The other campaign, the main campaign, which we haven't played at all yet, goes through every single map in the game and the quests are tied to the map itself. Okay. To the geography on the map. Yeah. So I think I'm hoping and I'm optimistic that when we get to that campaign, it's going to feel a lot more tied to the gameplay because it's about specific areas of the map. That's really interesting. And and it also has a side quest feature where you can latch on to side quests based on decisions. And then you'll flip to like side quest areas and resolve side quests before you get back to the map quests, which... I'm hoping is is even the you know the best way of playing the game. Even though I find the character campaign very strong. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, so let's talk about campaign games in general because you know the recent trend in board games not a, not the recent trend a trend in board games in recent years has been legacy games, which are kind of the ultimate endpoint of the campaign idea because it's literally a game that's one campaign and then you're done with it. Right. 
But there there have always been not always there there have been a lot of campaign games as well, and we've played a few of them. So far, at least as far as I can remember, the ones that I've played are the Netrunner Terminal Directive Legacy game, Descent uh, Second Edition, mm-hmm. Imperial Assault, and then Pandemic Legacy. And that's I put the, them in that order because that's worst to best. Okay. And so I want to run down kind of pros and cons of each of those. Mage, Mage Knight? Mage Knight's not a campaign. Okay, sorry. No. I, th- I thought there was a campaign. No, there's no campaign mode. I don't, know. I don't even like Mage Knight, so I just brought it up for you. Yeah, that's a, po- that's a future podcast. I'm going to make you play Mage Knight again, and then we're going <laughs> to argue with you about that. So Mage Knight is a masterpiece. Look. Someone has to be the villain in every episode. That's true. We had yeah. Orion was the I, villain. F- for the on record, that episode, him and I will gang up on you. For the record, Orion chose the cat as as his starting That's character. That's the problem. That's the problem. You got to choose the dog because dogs are better. Objectively, yes. Anyway, let's start at the bottom. Terminal Directive. I did. Orion and I did a whole podcast about this, but it was garbage. It had a really weak story. It had a few real choices, like they presented choices to you, but sometimes they led to to exactly the same rewards. And I think the real problem with Terminal Directed that we elaborated on uh, in the episode is that there's just a complete disassociation between what you are doing in the game and the story. Like it literally did not make any sense. In the story, the runner and the corporation are like pursuing the same goal. But in the gameplay, you're still someone trying to hack into the corporation and it had no relevance. It was very bad. And I think that's an example of like everything that could go wrong in terms of a campaign. Then we have Descent, which I think really uh, nails the idea of character progression. And it obviously borrows a lot from role-playing games from Dungeons & Dragons where you have characters with stats and weapons and loot and you can buy items and that kind of thing. And you get a real kind of attachment to your character and their loot, and you're trying to upgrade them. Us, maybe more than Grisband some Grisband is thirsty! Matt, who, yes, had Grisband the thirsty, who was, what, a dwarf? A dwarf. Yeah, he did. He backflipped over everyone. The forwards backflip, I believe, was my signature move. Yes. And so I think it really captures kind of the tie, tying it to your character or, or getting tied up with your character and progressing your character. And I think it has a really good connection between the story and the game because you're following a story and it gives specific scenarios based on decisions you make and what has happened in the story. It's not ideal. They're not super tied together, but at least each scenario is tied to a story point. Yeah. As opposed to near and far, where you're playing the same game regardless of the story. In Descent, you're yeah. you're playing the same mechanisms, but the scenarios are different. That's interesting. It's almost as if the sort of campaign storyline is operating at opposite levels between the two games. What do you mean? So with Descent, it's operating at the which mission do we play Mm -hmm. level which drastically changes what the actual setup of a a given game looks like Mm -hmm. but once you're in the game you don't necessarily think of the overarching story correct um whereas near and far is opposite in that the the macro game game is the same 
Whereas these story moments are completely determined by the overarching story. Yeah, that's a, yeah that that nails it. And so in that sense, I think in those two senses, the progression of your character and the connection between the story and the and the gameplay it really nails it. Of course, the big problem though with Descent is that when you have that progression, you also have massive snowballing problems, where right. you want you know you have the issue where. As a designer, you want to reward players for winning, yeah. but when you're doing a multi-game campaign, that just allows the player who wins early to gain more power, which helps them win more or win more easily. Yeah. And that's a difficult problem to overcome. Then we have Imperial Assault, which is basically the same system as Descent, just Star Wars. It still has the snowballing issues, unfortunately. One full campaign of both games, I don't think they really solved that at all or attempted to address that at all. And it also has a, a, a problem that's also in Descent where it rewards the winner as the, the side which wins the very last scenario. So, you you know, in an Imperial Assault in, in the campaign I did, you know, Orion was destroying Ben and I on almost every scenario. And then we almost won the very last one. And according to the game, we would have been the winners, even though we were just being wrecked the entire campaign and, and got lucky in the last one. Yeah. And so that's kind of anticlimactic. And I have harsh just, words about Descent and Imperial Assault, but we've talked about that in other places. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think those are the, the you would agree that those are kind of the fundamental problems with the campaign sure. mode of those games. Yeah, sure. And then finally, we get to Pandemic Legacy, which I think, you know, is the best of these four games, I think, unquestionably. Although I do like Imperial Assault a lot, but I love Star Wars. And Pandemic has a great connection between the story and the game, closer than any of these, because it evolves the gameplay and it evolves not only on a scenario level, but on a decision-making level, both micro and macro. It connects the story and the gameplay really well. It has a great sense of progression, where you can do permanent things because it's a legacy game, permanent things to the board. And you can progress kind of where you have bases and stuff on the board and how you're going to start out the next scenario. And it, you know, it obviously doesn't have these snowballing issues on a competitive level because it's a fully cooperative game. And it does have snowballing issues though, where not issues, but it has a snowballing situation where if you do really badly on certain missions, it can make the next ones harder, but it provides a mechanism where you get more funding, which is more action cards, which makes the game easier. So it does a really good job of balancing that out while still providing a lot of challenge. Yeah. And so on many areas, Pandemic Legacy nails, I think, what these kind of key points of campaign games the only problem I have with it, and I talked about this on my top 50 list podcast, is that sometimes it takes away decision-making potential by adding these like surprise twists that you couldn't have anticipated or prepared against. Yeah. And so in that sense, it drives the narrative a bit at the expense of gameplay or interesting decisions. So near and far never will put you in that position where... You feel like a, cer a certain game or a, a certain situation in a game couldn't be anticipated or was sprung upon you. It'll yeah. never present you with that stuff because it does the actual gameplay of an ind individual game really well. And the campaign 
aspects are kind of infused into that game experience. Right. So the decisions you make in stories in Near and Far are not only a bit separate from the game itself, the consequences are almost entirely in the realm of the story rather yeah. than in the realm of the actual gameplay. Yeah. Which yeah. is very different from Pandemic Legacy, where decisions you make can very dramatically change the gameplay. Exactly. I find that really exciting. So, I think this is where Near and Far brings something that I haven't seen before to the idea of campaign games. And something that is perhaps more applicable to game design in the future th that other games could, could take advantage of. You know, it, it takes a lot of work to build a game like Pandemic Legacy, mm -hmm. where the actual gameplay is really uh, based on the campaign idea. Yeah, it, it's certainly more difficult to, to, to build that sort of game. Yeah. But, but it's, it's also, I think, a more rewarding experience in the end. Pandemic style. That style. Like yeah, that, right. That, Right. That integration of the story and the gameplay yeah. is more rewarding in the end if you do it well. Mm -hmm. But I think in terms of having story kind of built on top of a, a solid game, Near and Far does it almost as well as I could expect. Well, I can see areas where it could have been better and more robust, but they would have been extremely difficult. It does it very well. Yeah, yeah. But I, I can imagine that other games that that we like that aren't aren't campaign style games could potentially benefit from this kind of story injection. Mm -hmm. You know, even even Scythe. You know, imagine Scythe, but the the encounter experiences you have have some kind of narrative to them. So I think based around these campaign games that we've played, the kind of key principles that I extracted that make a good campaign are these four things. The first one is progression. You have to feel like you're progressing and growing as either a character or a, a part of a team or something. There has to be progression. You feel like you've built something on a very macro level. In other words, there has to be progression between game plays. The second one is that there should be a connection between the gameplay itself and the narrative aspect. And I, like we said before, Near and Far doesn't have this very intimately, but I think it, for not having that, it does about as well as it can. But I think kind of the ideal campaign game, you have that deep connection between the story and how the gameplay adapts. Right. The third principle for this ideal campaign game is that decisions matter. Not only just on a micro level, but on a macro level, like you have in Pandemic Legacy. And then I think the fourth thing, and this is kind of just a basic gameplay issue or, or balance issue generally, but I think becomes more of a an hurdle when you're designing a campaign, is keeping everyone involved and competitive throughout. Right? You don't the worst thing that could happen is halfway through the campaign you just feel like you can't ever win and you're stuck. Like that would be a disaster. Okay. Yeah. And then finally, not a principle, but I think a fundamental issue when it comes to designing campaign games is you have to ask yourself the question, would this just be better if it was an RPG? And, <laughs> I love that question. And that's probably 
in my mind, I haven't designed or even attempted to design a campaign game. In my mind, that would probably be my stumbling block where I get halfway through and I'm like, oh, I'm really just building an RPG system here instead of a board game. Yeah. So I think that's something that that needs to be considered when you're designing a, a campaign game. I like that. How do you think near and far stacks up to these? So against these principles, it doesn't do that well. So well, there's not a whole yeah. lot of progression, right? You don't have you don't have a lot of progression. You have little talents you can buy in between games. There's a little bit of progression in yeah. like building up your character's yeah. ability, but they're not particularly significant. Uh, the connection between story and gameplay, as we talked about, isn't there as much. I think, as we said before, decisions do matter. I think in terms of like the micro game, uh, in terms of getting those faction tokens, we talked about this before. I think right. that those decisions are more significant than we previously thought. Uh, but it does keep everyone involved and competitive, I think, pretty well. The winner of the game is just who scores the most points total across the campaign. So in each individual game, you just add those up. And, you know, someone could fall behind a lot, but I think, you know, most of the scores seem pretty close. So I guess these aren't like inherent principles that need to be followed. But in my mind, these are kind of principles that would be part of the Platonian, you know, ideal, the form of a, of a perfect campaign game. I don't know, Mark, because I think I, I like these principles, but I think that they work better when evaluating a game like Pandemic. Well, certainly the legacy aspect adds or helps that along because you're not restricted by non-permanence, right? When you're when you're able to permanently alter the board, it helps these things like progression. Yeah, but so for for with near and far, I mean, in all honesty, it, it's almost like playing four games and then taking your cumulative score to determine who who is the best. Sure, and then the story's added on to that. And then the story's added on to that. I think the conclusion we're coming to here with Near and Far is that the story is just kind of added on to a pretty good game. Yeah. But, but the stories but the, are so well written and so interesting and so quirky that they're forgiving a lot of sins. So this excites me because I think that other game designers could take other games and similarly adapt kind of an overarching story to whatever their particular games and tangibles are. I I think that there's the potential there to create an interesting experience on top of just the normal board game experience. I don't know. I don't know if I want this to become kind of a bigger trend. Well, you have games like Dead of Winter, which which add little story tidbits into the core, into the gameplay Mm-hmm. But it's not over multiple games like this. I don't know. I, I'm I not feel sure like... what the downside is, though, because it doesn't change the gameplay itself very much. Well, you know, it makes we, the game longer. It needs to be. We could throw out all of these story missions that we're doing and just do random missions from the storybook. Sure. And the gameplay itself would be identical. I don't see why that couldn't be added to a multitude of different games. I think it could work. I think. If this happened and it became a big deal in in many different board games, I think it'd get tiresome after a while because it does extend the length of the game. If the story isn't compelling in the first place, it might become tedious. I mean, from a design standpoint, wouldn't you rather have games that 
create emergent stories through the gameplay rather than forcing narrative upon them. What I'm saying is that at its core, what was done in Near and Far, and let's be clear on that, is take a pretty good, but not amazing, Euro game and add campaign story elements on top of that inherently as an idea is a mediocre idea and in this case was executed very well i don't i don't know whereas you other know, ways the, of think, incorporating i think that it's hard to say right now because i think that near and far is something that we haven't uh, encountered before maybe i think we have but i so i think in in kind of maybe the lighter euro game category of games this could be really effective i I disagree. I, yeah. I I disagree because I think inherently the idea itself is mediocre, right? It, it's just tacking on an element to a game that doesn't necessarily need it. But but again, it's only upside. So if it's executed poorly... Then it's downside. That's not what no, only upside but, means. But it's not. It's the same as... No, 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 no. No campaign. No, it's not. If you have a part of the game that's executed poorly, it's frustrating and tedious. With Near and Far, you already had story element. That the story elements are tied in some kind of continuity is a is a boon. I think that this kind of overarching story could be incorporated in a way natively to each game individually. This is only going to work for some games, obviously. But I think for the games that it would work, it would be really cool. I'm interested to see, you know, as developers get more uh, familiar with the idea where it goes. I would agree with that, but I don't think it should be as liberally applied as you seem to be wanting. I think it could work Um, very specifically. Like, I'm I'm excited... I think I'm just more optimistic. I'm not saying I want every game to be like this. I just, I think that I see the opportunity for something interesting in board games. Okay. We'll leave it at that. Yeah, that's fair. Comment below on your opinions of this <laughs> conflict. All right. Let's end this. Let's, let's step away from that discussion. Go back to the campaign principle. Well, I, I came up with a couple of campaign ideas. I am, I'm the, I am an aspiring game designer in that I've come up with very basic game design ideas and then done nothing with them. So in reality, I'm not a game designer at all. But here are some campaign ideas that I think are interesting that may work, but could also spectacularly fail. Here's the first one. You And, and Matt has not heard any of these at all. First, let's talk about a game idea that I think Orion and I have talked about privately that I don't know if it could be executed, but I think if it was, would be an amazing campaign experience. And that is the what I'm calling the Total War style of game. If you've ever played any of the Total War video games. Have you played any of those, Matt? No, I haven't. It's a grand strategy kind of style game with both macro and micro views. So you have, in like Rome Total War, you take... You know, you take a Roman or a Gaul, Gallic tribe or something, and you have, you know, the entire map of Europe and Asia and, and, you know, Carthage and all that. And you're going around and taking over cities and kind of establishing trade routes and all that good, you know, grand strategy, forex kind of stuff. But then whenever there's a battle, you have an option of actually going down to a ground level battle 
and then okay. you, and then you execute that battle and give orders to troops and do that kind of micro. The, the only game I can think that I've played like that is Star Wars Rebellion, which is awesome game from like the nineties. <laughs> was it called Rebellion? It was called same Rebellion. as the board game. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've played that game. Yeah, that was that's old. Oh, so old, so awesome. But anyway, the idea I had was making that into a board game. So here's what I'm envisioning, right? You have maybe a 1v1 kind of grand strategy style game where you're manipulating kind of troop movement and you're dealing with economic issues and resources and all of that. And whenever there's a battle, you go to like a sideboard and maybe you have like an app in the game where you input like on the macro level what troops you have in the area of the map. And then it like procedurally generates a battle setup for you. And then you fight out that battle, input the results, and it tells you what to do on the macro game. And you have a campaign in that setting. I, I think it would be logistically horrific to figure out, but so, I want I mean, to build this game. I mean, the major problem I see is it sounds like you have two different games. Well, yeah, that's the point. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> right, but, but, but think about it, right? You have these big strategy-level games, like, I don't know, Triumph and Tragedy or something like that. And, or even like Axis and Allies, right? And you get to the point where there's a battle and then like you each roll some dice and it's resolved super abstractly. Right. What if you didn't resolve those battles as abstractly and you added another mini game on into that is full of interesting decisions and, and tactics and such? I, I really don't know. I mean... And then I think it, it's because a cool it would idea. take a long time, I think you have to make it into some kind of campaign. Yeah, it's a cool idea. I mean, in comparison, since we've been talking about Near and Far, I think the cool thing about the way that Near and Far does overarching story is it injects it into these very specific story points. So what you're sure. describing is basically you get to a story point and you play an entire separate game. Well, not a story point. I'm not talking about a campaign in the sense of well, like a pure narrative, like a like a dis, you know, d with decision. Yeah, trees but or whatever. I'm calling a, it's a battle a story sure, point. Sure. At this point. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's indulgent. It sounds really cool. Yeah, indulgent sounds like a good <laughs> word for it. But maybe someday it will be reality. Okay, <laughs> moving on to the next one. A campaign game, and these are ideas that don't necessarily need to be campaign games. But I'm being self indulgent here. And throwing out my, my brilliant ideas that will not work. A game in which death is not the end of the game. So in other words, a game where you start out maybe, think of it like your party of adventurers. You know, a typical fantasy setting or whatever. And if your character dies in the campaign, it turns into like a ghost or a friendly spirit or something. Or maybe an evil spirit. Ooh. And then you have a whole rule set for ghost players and maybe it adapts and the narrative involves as people are, are harmed or killed or whatever and you have a narrative that way this seems like it'd be really hard to pull off well that that's a theme of my ideas but maybe <laughs> so it's wait a more minute. optimistic than the the total war one let me ask you one question yes so at the end of the campaign do you expect all most some or none of the players to be ghosts. 
that is the hard part. <laughs> maybe you make it so that maybe you make it cooperative and then you have to have at least one living player. Like if well, everyone that, dies, you fail the campaign or something or that, it resolves. I'm impressed less. with that answer. That answer. So maybe you make it almost like a roguelike video me. game, right? Where you're yeah. trying to reach, you know, maybe there's like the, the full extent of the campaign. If you win is like, you know, 15, 20 games, but there are different story resolutions. Yeah. If you fail before that. Yeah. I don't know. Ideas are coming to me. Cool. Is this one one more promising? Oh, definitely. Okay. Absolutely. Maybe the ideal tactical setup is like two two living players and two ghosts. Yeah, maybe. And so you have interesting decisions of like, do I want to deliberately get my character killed toward the beginning of the game, but I'm risking it? I don't know. I think it could work as a campaign game. I think it provides progression. It obviously connects story with gameplay. Your decisions will matter. I think it hits all of those points, those principles. And it keeps everyone involved. But it keeps them involved in a, in a changing way. I don't know. Maybe we'll have to build this one, Matt. You seem excited now. This one excites me. Okay. Yeah. Almost as much as a hockey baseball game. Final idea. I don't know if that hockey game is going to work, Matt. We had to have another, another meeting about that design. And this idea is basically create... Not necessarily a legacy game, but a game like Pandemic with like very deep story gameplay connection, but don't have those like surprise twists or have twists forecasted a bit more. And this is something I try, I worked with Orion a little bit on developing a system in which you get so there's like a, an event that happens. Let me back up a bit. You know how in games that have events that happen, Uh it's usually just a card drawn from a deck and then it's like, this happens to you. Sure. What if the cards were instead not just a card you draw from a deck, but they were more involved and you draw a card and it shows you, you know, maybe if it's it's a sci-fi setting and it's like you find mysterious footprints or something outside of your camp. Or you find some kind of old technology, and then okay. it gives you clues and ideas of potentially what the outcome could be, so you can prepare more, but not the full story. So you have, so you don't have like a perfect optimization puzzle, but you okay. somehow incorporate ways in which you prevent you you provide multiple ways in which this event could resolve, but it doesn't actually resolve until later on in the game. Yeah, that's interesting. That's kind of like a question of particular game design. So, like, it'd be hard to design the actual scenarios in a way that gives players an idea of what could happen without mm-hmm. just being like, this is what's going to happen to you. Well, the way the way I'd, I'd conceived it is that maybe you see a setup and then there's, like, three different possible outcomes. Oh, and then-, then based on some random factor of how much time passes in between them or something, certain outcomes are eliminated until it resolves into one of them. Okay. I don't know. Orion and I did a mock-up of this, and it worked fairly well on the Excel spreadsheet. I don't know why I brought up this idea. It's a. I think it's been something in my head that I've just wanted to get out, and now I'm getting it out. It's not really tied to campaign, but it is tied to narrative. It is tied to narrative, Yes. And that's all of my ideas. It would it would work on the the campaign level of narrative, sure, yeah. but not necess- It doesn't have to be right. campaign. 
Anyway, those are ideas I came, I, I or that have been brewing in my mind for a while, and I needed to, to get them out. Fair enough. Anyway, I think we've we've completely exhausted the topic of near and far and campaign games. Maybe too much. We've talked for like eight hours. I know. I'm gonna have to edit this down so much. We have like two hours of audio. <laughs> anyway, any any parting thoughts you wanted to uh, end us with? I I just. I'm excited for the chance for the pens to three-peat. That's really all oh, I have to say. No. Yeah. Not hockey. <laughs> I'm excited to see what happens with my character in Near and Far, because so far there have been a lot of cats. Yeah. My story has been I'm, just full of cats. I'm excited to see... I, I'm excited to play a lot more Near and Far. Yeah. You know, we're going to finish this character campaign in maybe two more games or something like that. I'm excited to do the map campaign. And we haven't even touched the random missions. So, um, yeah, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, and I'll, I'll definitely be getting a review out uh, pretty soon. It'll, it'll probably be a first impression because, you know, there are a lot of things I haven't experienced or haven't resolved yet. But once we once we finish this character campaign and start on a couple of the map ones, I'll have more to, th- to write about. But so far, it does look promising for sure. If you're the kind of person more like Orion, you might not enjoy it as much as we have. So if you have any comments on this very long-winded and rambling discussion of either Near and Far or campaign games in general, obviously we haven't played all the campaign games out there or even a a big portion of them, but I think we've played a pretty representative sample of what kind of games are out there. Uh, Comment below. I think there's there's a lot to talk about here, both from a design standpoint and just a gameplay standpoint. Uh, don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or, or wherever you're listening to this from. Um, if you prefer to listen to podcasts on YouTube, I am now posting them on YouTube. So look up the Thoughtful Gamer there and you can subscribe to the channel and get all the podcasts that way. Also check out the website at thethoughtfulgamer.com. I'm posting you know reviews and articles twice a week. And that's honestly where most of my work goes. It's not just the podcast. And uh, hit me up on Twitter and Facebook. I'm active there. We need more Twitter polls, Mark. More Twitter I, polls? I like that, yeah. Well, give me some poll ideas. I do. I don't know. I gotta I gotta have poll ideas. I, I like polls. They're fun, but I, I don't... Coming know. up with them is the easy part. Come okay, on. Okay, well, when, it, when you come up with a Twitter poll you want to know information about, just send it over to me. I'll post it. I hadn't thought that far ahead. Jeez. Okay, well, if it comes to you, I'll post some polls on Twitter, and you can all vote for them. And then to end, usually I I kind of end the podcast with a humorous quotation, but I'm going to be in the spirit of near and far, a little bit more whimsical and joyful with this quotation. Quoting J.R.R. Tolkien in Lord of the Rings, he used to often say that there is only one road, that it was like a great river. Its springs were at every doorstep, and every path was its tributary. It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door, he used to say. You step into the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there is no knowing where you might be swept off to. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye, everyone.